The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. May Chen opened Australasia's first public law specialist firm in a very early boutique law firm in 1994, and since then has built a company and record that has resulted in more gongs and top positions than this intro could fit. Here's a few notable ones. New Zealand's best public law firm a bunch of times, inaugural chair of Global Women, a director of BNZ, adjunct professor at Auckland Uni Law School, and recently the launch chair of Super Diverse Women. To talk about the law business, her career, and super diverse woman, Mei Chen joins us now. Thanks for coming on. G'day, Simon. G'day. Um, so first up, let's look at like um, the career in law from the start. Why law? What about the law appealed to you? Uh, well, my parents were very keen for me to be a lawyer. I, of course, wanted to be a professional athlete uh, because my parents were both elite athletes. And actually, my dad uh, came to New Zealand, and that's why we all immigrated, because he was an Olympics gymnastics coach. In fact, he was the youngest one, I think, in the world. Um, and uh, and my sister went on to be the youngest uh, international gymnastics judge. So he came here, really, to train the New Zealand gymnastics team. But I wanted to go into the law ultimately because, uh, you know, I wanted to help people. And uh, I think uh, the church had quite a, an influence on me early, my earlier life. Uh, my father had a job at the YMCA. I don't think he knew what the C stood for, but when they found <laughs> out, because we were Buddhists, they used to send us off to church. So, look, it was an, uh, I had experienced discrimination myself, having come to New Zealand at a young age. And, uh, you know, I was pretty interested in who had power and how to control it, and uh, to look after people who were uh, the subject of abuse of power. So, yeah, law was a good career. I've seen elsewhere that you've mentioned um, that in coming from Taiwan, sports was a great bridge into New Zealand society. It was absolutely fabulous. Look, I was... Um, you know, as unpopular as a cup of cold sick as a, as a short, small Chinese girl. But hey, you know, get me onto the track and field. I could beat anybody. I was a sprinter. 
I was a high jumper, a long jumper. I played every sport. I was so fortunate because I was, uh, you know, I was cool to be with solely because I was good on the sports field. And uh, it taught me a lot of my leadership abilities. I captained a lot of teams. uh, And I learned all of my culture really on the sports field. I learned how to play with others and you know we used to go away on into sport and that's when I learned a lot about how other people lived uh, I didn't know because I, I grew up in a Chinese household a lot of people said oh look you arrived in New Zealand when you were really young so you just you know normal Kiwi upbringing nope <laughs> my parents were Chinese and I grew up in a Taiwanese household that's what I grew up in that culture shock what was it like also in terms of law Tell me about what the law industry was like when you landed in there. Was it so still an old boys club? I uh, was in the honours stream and uh, after my third year in the law I tried to leave. I actually wanted to leave because I just, I felt so odd. Uh, you know, nobody else looked like me and nobody had an approach to the law which was similar to mine. Uh, when I looked at those people who were succeeding in the law class, you know, they came from daddy's, you know, they, they clerked at daddy's firm over the holidays Um you know, what did I do? Well, I counted screws at Shatlocks um, and uh, I shifted furniture at the Teachers College, Dunedin Teachers College, which was where my dad worked. And so I wanted to leave because I just thought there isn't anybody like me here. I can remember one of the law professors, Professor Richard Mahoney, saying to me, look, lady, I'm not here to tell you what the law should be. I'm just here to tell you what the law is. Because I used to say to him, I don't think the law's right. I think the law should be changed. I think the policy is wrong. And so it occurred to me that my approach to the law was different, and I just didn't think that law was made for people like me. But anyway, uh, they convinced me to stay. I stayed, uh, and I topped the law class. I was first equal um, with another um, woman who's a very brilliant lawyer. And, um, and, And so after that, I didn't know what to do, and I said to the dean, well... I never want to practice law. I don't think I'd be any good at it. Um, I don't come from a family of lawyers. In fact, I am the first uh, of uh, first lawyer in my family, along with my second sister. So I'm I'm sister number I'm daughter number four. She's daughter number two, and uh, she's now an Oxford don mm-hmm. at Merton College in Oxford, and she runs a law faculty there. So I went to Harvard. She went to Oxford, and we're the first two lawyers in the family. But uh, but anyway, he was the one that suggested. Uh, I had a law professor at the time who suggested I apply to go to Harvard, and I got in. Then I had no money. Then I won eight scholarships, and I went. So uh, anyway, I've had a profoundly interesting experience for somebody who has not had sufficient experience or mentoring to actually guide me into a wonderful career path but I kind of fell into my career path and lots of people say oh you're so fortunate you had this career path nope actually I had no idea what I was doing none tell me about that Harvard so did you go straight out of uh no no. I went uh, so uh, the America law school start um, in the second half of the year. So I was assistant lecturer at the University of uh, Otago Law School, and so I actually started teaching when I was twenty, and they had me teaching land law. I was terrible at it, and it was terribly boring. Um, but I can remember applying, and I never told my mum and dad because I thought, well, I mean, this is a long shot. I'm never going to get into this law school because. Because, of course, you know, Harvard took, I think at that time, 0.36% of the people who applied. And, of course, everyone who applies is a first-class honours and a straight-A degree and, you know, and, and other fancy-pants things to their name that show that they're great leaders. So I just didn't think I'd ever get in. 
So anyway, when I got in, I then applied for money and I got some money. And in fact, I even got money to take my husband because he'd just finished his PhD in English literature. And so, you know, here we were, two very impecunious people. And studying in the States is hellishly expensive and you're going to pay for uh, health insurance as well. But anyway, look, I got in and I remember telling mum and dad. And dad said, oh, but you've got a really good job here as a junior lecturer. You know, why are you going to Harvard? So anyway, uh, I went to Harvard and... uh, uh, and, you know, I won a prize. I won a prize for my master's thesis. And thank goodness I did because mum and dad were flying over for the graduation and, you know, we had just completely run out of money. And it was fantastic because, you know, it was, that was back in 1988, so last century, as my son would say. Uh, we didn't have any money and, thank God, uh, the prize came with a cheque of 1500 US dollars. So I promptly used that money to hire a big Oldsmobile and we took my mum and dad on a road trip. So we took them to the United Nations in New York and we went to Washington. It was cool. But, you know, that's what it is. So people look at me now and they say, oh, you're a fancy pants lawyer. No, actually, those were my roots. They were humble. And as my dad always said to me, you're so lucky, May, we had humble roots because if you look at 60% of those who've won a Nobel Prize, they all came from humble roots. So there you are. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, I'm, I'm well set up for a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so, so coming back to New Zealand with a great uh, bachelor's degree and then a master's from Harvard, I imagine that meant that you had a better look at the local market but is it, is it something uh, crazy that like you know it's like that joke about um obama being president doesn't mean that it's equality it's only when you have uh, an african-american as dumb as george bush as president that you have <laughs> a- actual equality uh well i don't know well i remember when i got into harvard someone said to me oh they're just looking for women uh, and then I remember when I won the Frank Knox scholarship because it's a really hard scholarship to win. I think they, it's only for law once every three years, so it's it's a hard gig to land. Someone said, "Oh, it should have gone to a real New Zealander." Look, it's it's never been an easy road. You just got to have a thick skin, and you just got to keep working hard. Uh, at the end of the day, Simon, uh, I can't ever rest on my laurels. Uh, it's it's uh, as as Kermit once said, it's it's tough being green. I don't look the part. Uh, not a lot of people expect me to look like this. Uh, even when I meet people now, they say, oh, gee, you're quite small, aren't you? You look bigger on television. Um, I'm not sure what that means, but uh, I do my best. I've tried to lower my voice. Uh, some people ha- say to me, if they don't know me, do you speak English? Well, well, clearly I do. But it's it's quite interesting if you think about it. I came to New Zealand as a six-year-old. I, I didn't speak English. And now I am in a profession where the ability to talk is paramount. So isn't that funny? T- tell me about setting up Jen Palmer, which in 1994 broke ground as an innovative oh, public crazy. law. Yeah, no, it was crazy. And and we were we were one of the first boutique law firms and I can remember it. We you know, we thought we'd do this thing. So I was I was happily ensconced at the university. I was the youngest senior lecturer at the time in law. My parents were desperate for me to be the youngest law professor in New Zealand. And then Jeffrey said to me, oh, you need to leave the university because, you know, you know, there's nothing else for you to learn here. And I said, well, why are you here? So we both left. Uh, he went to Chapman Trip. I went to Russell McVay. He then rang me and said, oh, you need to come to Chapman Trip. And I said, well, why don't you come to Russell McVay? What difference does it make? So actually, anyway, in the end, we both decided to quit and just set up Jen Palmer. And, um, you know, we were clear we had to set it up before the first MMP election because we were going to ride that wave. I mean, what we had created was a Washington law firm, a law firm that specialised uh, in policy 
uh, and in law reform. And, you know, there just wasn't such a law firm in those days. And there were no boutique law firms. Uh, and there was nobody really practicing public law privately. There was Crown Law. You could practice public law if you went to a government department. But frankly, there were just barristers doing judicial review. They went to court. I mean, we weren't talking about that. We were talking about Parliament and we were talking about lobbying uh, the executive, uh, which was the policy branch of government. So um, I I remember we took advice from a few people, um, some senior judges, uh, who were kind enough to say that they didn't think we could survive. Uh, on just specialising in public law and uh, and I mean most people thought we were pretty mad actually. I think when we first started they said oh there's, a, there's an ex-politician and an ex-academic, they've got no idea what they're doing and they'll never succeed. Well we were fortunate Simon, in terms of the entrepreneurial S-curve we were right at the start of that S-curve and we rode that S-curve really for the next 10 years we pretty much had a monopoly because nobody quite knew what the hell we were up to. Um, but the clients knew they knew because they were trying to do business and, and they were having problems with government. And it was either policy or they didn't like the law or they had some interference being run by ministers or sometimes they ended up in court. Um, and so we just had a hellishly good client base. We had a lot of clients approaching us. And when we first started the firm, I thought we were going to act, be acting for government. And we did a bit of that. But actually, we acted for business. That's what we did. And, uh, and you know, we, we, we drafted bills, we, we drafted a lot of aid memoirs to ministers, we lobbied a lot, and we ended up in court sometimes, but yeah, t- it was t- a hell of a ride. T- talk me through, what, what, what is it that a public law firm, the, the Washington style, as you say, hmm. uh, does? Like, do you um, lobby to change existing laws? Do you contribute to the drafting of things that are coming? Do you, is there any kind of, you know, house of cards intrigue? You know, what, what, kind, of, <laughs> what kind of stuff are you doing to Well, actually, to we, we, we do all yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, I guess you need to switch it around the other way. What is it clients ask us to do? Well, generally, we used to get calls from clients from Auckland. They'd say, oh, hell, you know, I'm trying to do this business and they're just trying to pass this law and it's going to kill my business. Stop it. Uh, they, they, they would say things like that. Or, or I've just heard that they're drafting a new policy in this area and, and the way they're drafting it at the moment is stupid because that's not how this business works. And if they do it that way, we're never going to be able to implement it because basically what they've drafted isn't how we do it. So uh, you, ne- you need to change it. Uh, or they would say, look, um, people are coming after us and saying we've breached, but we're actually not in breach. Um, and so you need to you need to defend us. So uh, we we did everything that was needed, really, uh, obviously legally, <laughs> uh, that's required. And so that's why I wrote the book Public Law Toolbox, because actually the practice of public law is pretty damn difficult. Um, the important thing is to diagnose the problem and then figure out what's the best tool. And the, the best tool is never the same. It depends on the circumstances. And of course, there's a whole range of tools that are only really valuable to use in the run-up to the election. So, uh, for example, at the moment, on Saturday, I was at a hui, we've managed to get um, uh, unanimous agreement. There's going to be an agreement in principle put through. There are some things that you can only do in the run-up to an election because uh, you've got a break point, so sometimes the timing gets speeded up, which is either very good or not very good, depending on whether you want it or don't want it. Um, and uh, and you really need to understand how government works. And uh, So it's not just going to court, but it's really working upstream so that, you know, you can actually have an influence on the policy or have an influence on the law before it's applied to your client to their detriment. Uh, It's really going upstream to make sure that you can ensure that the policy and the law is fit for purpose for a particular business. 
that's really interesting. Mm. And that upstream, when you're talking about uh, government, is, it means the people at the very highest parts of decision-making, well, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's easier in New Zealand. New Zealand is small. The number of decision-makers are relatively small. But you live and die by your reputation, so you just have to stay assiduously apolitical. And I think the only trouble is that sometimes, you know, I'm forced to sue people. People take it very personally. At the end of the day, I'm a lawyer. It's what I do. I mean, you know, it's like saying a hairdresser cuts hair. Look, every now and then I have to sue somebody. It's uh, it's not personal. It's professional. If I'm instructed, that's what I'm required to do. But obviously my job is to make sure we never get there. Uh, unfortunately, some clients leave it really late. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. Sometimes they say, "May keep me out of the law. How can I devise a business where I'm not regulated? So, or, or they say, you know, we don't like the regulation, you need to change it. But clearly a big issue is going to be a regulation of the Internet of Things, and it's coming. It's just that the law is always very slow in catching up, and then usually when it's devised, it's a, it's a bit clunky. It looks from the outside like it's a different kind of law business as well, as opposed to, say, the the big contract factories where people are measuring their day in six-minute units and you can see how many contracts they, they drafted or whatever. Uh, what, is it a different model than uh, that I kind of like is, pyramid yeah. scheme um big agency, big big professional services model? Look, there are times when we have to draft contracts, but if we draft contracts, it might be a contract for a pharmaceutical company that's entering into an agreement with the Government of New Zealand through the Ministry of Health for a pandemic flu uh, um, uh, remedy. Uh, and and that's hugely complicated because it, when 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 a pandemic strikes, uh, you have to be signed up. And of course, uh, particularly when you're talking about bird flu, the 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 remedy or the um, inoculation is is made from fresh eggs. So actually, you, you the countries take. Um, priority so we would I think in that case we'd negotiate a priority for New Zealand to be number three and it's pretty urgent because they can only make so much uh, of the serum at a time but anyway um, getting back to it it's more like we, we run more like a minister's office here things happen <laughs> the proverbial hits the fan we run um, and so it is really important that we run an elite shop we do need to have people who are very good here and we turn things around pretty quickly uh, so we fix problems, that's what I do. I'm really clear about that. Uh, I am a lawyer, but my job is to fix problems. That's what I do, I'm a problem solver. I'm often a problem solver of last resort. People come here, they're in A&E, they're on the verge of death, you have to try and save them. Uh, they've usually spent all their money on other lawyers and it hasn't worked. And generally it's a bit like a James Bond movie. We've got a small window of opportunity and you just got to run and get through it before it closes. Um, so it's quite hard. The lawyering here is not easy. It's not for the faint-hearted. And sometimes you're required to take the government on. Well, it's hard to take the government on. And it's hard to take ministers on. They have a lot of lawyers and they have a lot of resource. And generally your guy doesn't have as much resource. So it's a David and Goliath fight. So you need to be smart. You need to think about different ways of doing things. You know, you've got a slingshot and a stone. <laughs> they got an entire army. And it's usually pointed towards your client who they're busy trying to kill so the aim is to try and help them without getting in the middle because otherwise you get shot as well it sounds fascinating and also <laughs> something that you've kind of made up as you've gone you know you've put the tracks down in front of right. yourself because there wasn't the model ahead let's talk a little bit about kind of you know um forging ahead where the model doesn't yeah, exist with, right. with, with diversity as well which yeah, is something that's, that's been a 
huge focus of your career between Global wow. Woman, uh, the Asian uh, Business Leaders Network, uh, yeah. with, with super diverse women that you're getting into now. Yeah. T- tell me about the need for that. Well, I think it's important always to give visibility to things that are invisible, particularly when you can see them evolving. Um, of course, I'm very sensitised to that because I've really lived that diversity journey my whole life, but I just knew I had to come to Auckland. And when I came here, I thought, my God, you know, this is a different country. Mm-hmm. And I realised that what would be needed would be two major things. That, first of all, Pākehā businesses would really need advice on how to deal with not, not, not export consu- consumers, but, 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 but clients in-house in New Zealand mm. that were really different and would want different things and speak different languages and have different cultures and have different e- expectations as clients, but also that there would be a wave of super diverse clients. Migrants who come to New Zealand don't necessarily understand the rule of law culture, don't really understand how to do business in this business culture, don't speak the language very well, who are going to have a range of issues. I mean, if a normal Pākehā business has enough trouble with, you know, regulation, these people were going to have it in spades. They weren't going to be able to really understand the rules and the laws, even the basic ones about employees, P-A-Y-E, holiday pay, about the fact that you can't pay people under the table if they're on restricted visas because you get prosecuted under the Immigration Act. You know, that they'd have overseas investment act problems so uh it's all come to pass i mean you know i started this journey five years ago that's when i arrived uh in in auckland and i set up the super diversity center for law policy and business we're busy doing uh, cultural capability audits now not just iq not just eq but now cq the ability to have sufficient cultural capability so that you can manage your super diverse employees Almost 50% of the talent pool in Auckland are migrants and their New Zealand-born children. Mm. And also on top of that, you know, if you're wanting to attract new migrant clients or ethnic clients, then you need to have a bit of cultural capability. Otherwise, you're not going to know what it is they want and you're not going to be able to communicate with them. So I, I've, I've loved it. It's been fun. And um, as a legal entrepreneur, I've seen it coming. And so that's why I set up the Super Diversity Centre. It's set up under Chen Palmer. And, uh, and so we now do consultancy advice for business because, you know, businesses are saying our market share is dropping. I say, well, what's your client base? We look at it. It's a traditional Anglo-Saxon client base. I say that's wonderful. But the trouble is that the average age of an Anglo-Saxon is 41, of a Pacifica is 21, Māori 23, Asian 30. And, uh, and in terms of the population in Auckland, almost 50%, Māori, Pacifica, Asian. Yeah. By 2020, it's in 600 working days, Simon, Two, uh, you know, one out of three are going to be Asian. By 20, you know, uh, 38, um, which are Stats New Zealand projections, 51% of the population is going to identify as Asian, then Māori, then Pacifica. Now, 65% will still identify as Anglo-Saxon. But, you know, that's my son. Um, you know, we, we're having more mixed-race marriages. We're having more ethnically um, mixed babies. New Zealand is transforming, and as a consequence of that, there are some real opportunities, but some downsides if we are not equipping ourselves. You know what I find amazing, and I, I think there must be a wave about to break here, but you look at kind of the mid-ranks of um, Fonterra's or ASB's, these big corporates, and there's great diversity in culture and gender, yep. especially. But then you go up. And then you go up, <laughs> and you've got one top NZX50 uh, CEO is a woman, 13% of directors sure. a woman. There must be a wave about to break because we've been going backwards for a few years. Yeah, and I guess, Simon, I'm part of that wave. I mean, I sit on the BNZ board. Yeah. It's a major board. I look around me. There aren't a lot of people who look like me. So it's important for me to set up super diverse women, and it was important for me to set up New Zealand Asian leaders because when we did the survey, we found that 5% of NZ, top 
100 NZX companies had any Asians on their board, and yet over half of them had their major markets in Asia. On top of that, if Auckland is the major market in New Zealand, you know, we've got a situation where we're moving to a third of the Auckland population being Asian. So, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, some Asians have assimilation bias, just like everybody else has assimilation bias. Uh, they like the organisations they do business with to reflect them. And all I'm saying is that there's now a growing group of people. And so, you know, diversity is, cannot be narrowly defined as, you know, straight white women wanting to get on boards. I'm sorry. The definition of diversity is diverse. Mm-hmm. It's all of the things that differentiate us. And in many ways, it's not a, a gender and it's not an ethnicity. So, sometimes um, just not being an accountant means that you... Ha- bring diversity to a board. Precisely, or not being a lawyer means you bring diversity to a board. It's about different thinking. And I have to say that I sometimes, on behalf of Power Style Mowers, because I'm married to one, get a little bit upset. You know, people stereotype um, people according to their gender and race. To be honest, I've found some Power Style Mowers much more open um, than some women um, about issues to do with Asia. Because, you know, for example, I I work with the CEO of NIB. NIB is the, the... key sponsor of Super Diverse Women. The CEO has spent longer working in Asia than I have. And so sometimes I get a bit frustrated because I don't want people to stereotype me. I don't want them to look at me and think, okay, she's a short Chinese woman, so she probably doesn't speak English and she probably is really good at maths and she probably drives badly. Actually, on all three of those accounts, they are wrong. Well, maybe I do drive badly, but, you know, I'm not that good at maths, but um, but I do speak English. And, uh, and, and, you know, the stereotype for people who look like me is that we're self-effacing, we're not leadership material, we like to serve. Well, I don't mind serving, but, you know. So all I'm saying is that we shouldn't be applying those stereotypes to other people. I think we've got a bit of a simplistic formula going with diversity, it, and it drives me mad. And the only way to move past stereotypes is to get many, many more examples of different people it's in correct. those different roles. And which is why it's great that you're interviewing me and which is why I said, I said yes. What, what, what can it, like, you know, if someone's out here listening and they're in a decision-making role in a company and maybe some of this is rung true, they're like, oh, shoot, you know, like mm. actually China is our biggest market. It and, is. Oh, we don't have uh, yeah. leadership or governance that, that takes into account. Sure. What, what can people do? I mean, well, uh, what I'm I suppose saying, they can sign up to your service. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, you know... Um, Um, For example, New Zealand Asian leaders, go on the website. I mean, I remember having a wonderful discussion with Doug Mackay, who's a a bit of a champion of mine and a favourite of mine. He's a fantastic leader. Um, but he, at that time, he was uh, CEO of Auckland Council. And I said, Doug, I said, here are the eight CCOs. I mean, they're in the top 30 businesses in New Zealand. And you've got one Asian director on them. And he said, oh, well, we've really struggled. You know, we just haven't been able to find any Asians that are qualified. So a big part of the reason I set up New Zealand Asian Leaders was to deal to that. And Doug was great because I said, well, I'm going to set up Asian Leaders. Go look at the website. He looked at the website and said, we want to be a corporate member. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's people like that really having a decent look at the talent out there. At the end of the day, there are now lots of Asian New Zealanders who have been here one, two, three, four, five generations and who have a hell of a lot to add uh, to the society, but they may not be that well known. And that's partly the reason I set up New Zealand Asian Leaders. The purpose of that is to profile, but also to hear what they've got to say. Uh, it was funny, for many years, you know, Asia was out of favour, and then when it came into favour, we had all of these Pākehā telling us, you know, how to do business in Asia. It was kind of like Māori, you know. We then had all these seminars where we had Pākehā telling us how to do business with Māori. Um, there came a time when that wasn't acceptable, really, because Māori needed to speak for themselves. I'm sorry, it's not acceptable now. You want to hear about how to do business in Asia? Ask some Asians. Um, they're actually from there, and they know. 
So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just pretty important that we get past a few of these breakpoints. But the nice thing is that for once in my life, people are actually discriminating in favour of me because I'm Asian, which is amazing. I have clients seeking me out because I'm Chinese and they feel that I'm more sympathetic to them. So how good is that? For the first time in my life, I'm the right gender and I'm the right colour. Yay. And with the demographics that you were mentioning, it's Auckland's future. Well, um, all I'm saying is that I'm desperately keen because I'm a passionate New Zealand citizen that we get the best out of our super diversity and we're not going to unless we realise that actually a super diverse future for New Zealand looks really different and, and we do need more cultural capability than we've got. I mean, you know, we blow hot and cold on this. We love their money, <laughs> but we don't like them. So let me tell you, these are people with money. They can go anywhere, Simon. So we, we need to start embracing them and what it is they have to bring to this country. We don't want them marginalised. We don't want them to be un- unhappy here. At the end of the day, we're sorting this out in the bedrooms of the country. If you look at the intermarriage statistics, you'll see that they're going up. And, uh, you know, the children that we bring forth, they're Kiwis, but they are, their culture's different too. I mean, Jack has... Grandparents from Shetland and Aberdeen on the one hand, and he's got Taiwanese grandparents on the other side. He's the only Chinese boy I know who's six foot two at the age of 14 and has curly, brown, reddy Scottish hair. Um, you know, but they are the future face of New Zealand. That's so cool. Thank you so much for joining us to chat today, Mei Chen. Uh, yeah, do do get involved and have a look at New Zealand Asian leaders and also at the Super, super Diversity. Women. And the Super, super Diversity Centre. Um, we've, we've published a Super Diversity stock take, had 145,000 downloads in its first year, and it's all the stats about what is happening to this country demographically. Yeah. And if you're young and listening to this and thinking, is it time for me to start getting involved? The answer is yes. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you to Madeline Chapman for producing and thank you very much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Simon underscore Pound. Always love to hear what you think and any suggestions for people who would be interesting to talk to on the podcast. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.